Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra-wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. Welcome to the 33rd episode of the Wealth Well Done podcast, where we lean into the tactical, practical, and spiritual advice to help you do your wealth well done. Last week, we had Jeff Miller on, and we replayed an episode where Jeff came on and talked about the impact of money inside marriage. The week before that, we had Mike Gudat, Brad Stiegel, and Isaac Bennett on to talk about the development that we are doing in Belize. A little update there, we're closing on about halfway through the raise on that one. So if you still want in, there's uh, there's still time, but that one is closing up quickly, which is great. Um, this week, we're going to lean in a little bit more on the market and talking about not just the market in terms of the stock market, but in the economy as well. Um, and so there, there's undeniable issues inside the economy. Um, when you when you look at this, there are, we're going to go into some of those concerns, um, but it can be we can we can easily gloss over it because the stock market's doing well, and so stock market the S and P five hundred, which is the uh, normal what someone refers to the market. That's the that's the benchmark that is normally used there. The stock market is up eight uh, percent year to date, which is approximately it's dropped approximately ten percent since July. It was up to uh, over eighteen percent at one point here in the year, uh, but that's not the only factor inside the the market. So there's also the uh, GDP, so the, the gross domestic product. Um, we have unemployment, we have inflation, which we're going to come back to that. And so what I want to do is, is help you understand how does how does this all affect you? First, let's, let's understand a little bit more about inflation. Uh, so inflation is typically based around the consumer price index, or you hear people talk about CPI, and that currently sitting at a 3.7% increase uh, over the last 12 months. And so that's getting closer to the Fed's target. The Fed has said that the target is to, is 2%. We want 2% inflation, which means every every when you look at a point in time here, prices should be about 2% higher than they were a, a year ago. And and so this was got real high um, here the last couple of years. And the Fed has been working on bringing that back down. They've been that's why the whole that's why they've been raising interest rates uh, as a means of slowing down the economy and therefore pulling some money out of the economy to um, to drive back to drive inflation back down and where there's, there's been if you if you look at your grocery bill and say do you think your grocery bill has only grown by 3.7 percent since last year um, you would likely disagree with that uh, if you talk to a business owner you would you probably won't hear any business owner who's thought that the numbers that have been reported on inflation whether it is you know, the 9% that was reported when it was more at its peak or down here at 3.7, that they would not say that their that their prices have only increased that much. They'd often say their prices have increased dramatically more than that. And so what I wanted to do is help you understand a little bit about how CPI is measured and some of the changes that have uh, been made to that. So what they're doing is they're they're looking at a handful of things across across the, you know, what, what someone would be likely to buy. And they are um, comparing those prices to where they were at, you know, a, a year ago, and with some key changes though that make this number more misleading now than it used to be is they might do product substitution. So if if they were to look at uh, a cake and say, you know, a cake costs 
you know, blank amount, you know, I'll just use fake numbers. So cake costs $20 today. Um, and, you know, last a year ago, a cake only cost $15. So that's a significant amount of inflation there. But they might say, well, you know, cake is cake is a uh, is a uh, has is kind of an outlier now. It's had this big price increase, so we're going to take out cake and we're going to substitute cookies instead. And so they're going to use some other substitute of something else that's a a sweet dessert and say, well, see, cookies cookies have only grown from you know the equivalent amount from what fifteen dollars would have bought you in cookies a year ago. You know, you can still buy for fifteen dollars and fifty cents today. And so, therefore, they're going to use cookies then as the inflation number instead of cake. It doesn't change the fact that cake has gone up quite a bit in price. And so, therefore, it's a way to uh, manipulate that number back down to make the the inflation seem lower than what it actually is. Another big one that they did. Um, and so that was around 1990 when they when they allowed them to make substitutions um, to, to kind of convenient substitutions in 82. They and this is back when inflation was uh, when they were trying to get inflation under control as it had gotten so high. Um, they changed the way that they uh, count housing, and instead of it being about the cost of home ownership, they changed it to the cost of rent. And what this did, and so May first of 1982, inflation was at nine percent, and then uh, August first of 83, inflation had dropped to one percent. Now, they had been doing other work to try to drive inflation down, but this meaningful change there to the way that they measured it uh, had a big impact. And so if you look at um, if you look at the what what difference that makes, you probably would add so most experts would say that you'd add at least three to four percent to the current inflation. Um, so if we said you know, inflation is at 3.7 right now, they're saying you're, yeah, it's probably at least 6.7 or 7.7 if you just go back to including home own, the price of home ownership um, into the calculation. If you look at numbers from Zillow, so they have what's called a shelter CPI. And numbers uh, uh, on that show that, you know, that the shelter CPI is around a 3% uh, growth right now, 3% inflation. Whereas if you look at just on Zillow, you do a search and you say, you know, a, a broad search to say how much has rent gone up from 2021 to 2022? And that's about 16%. And, you know, still going up even more today. And when you look at where rent is heading now as insurance prices have gone up so much and you're seeing, um, you're, you're going to continue to see higher rent bumps. Um, but yeah, we're going to try to push that number artificially down. And then this is heavily political. So it's important that you understand that there is incentives to, or that, excuse me, there are incentives to keeping the inflation number um, down lower for political reasons. Now, there's certainly economical reasons to do this as well, but just want you to understand that it's hard to trust the Fed data completely. It can be misleading um, when they say, "Hey, everything's okay," just because inflation, you know, is at 3.7. That's closer to we're going to keep working to get it down to two. Uh, that does not necessarily mean everything's okay. Uh, historically, you'd say high inflation rate is 5%. Uh, what you'll start hearing more people talk about is hyperinflation. Now, hyperinflation is when you get uh, in excess of 50% per month. And that sounds crazy, but uh, in not too distant past here, we have had Brazil, China, Germany, France, Argentina, Yugoslavia, Hungary, Zimbabwe have all felt the uh, effects of hyperinflation. The um, 
in Germany in 1920, so after World War One here, Germany had a 30,000% inflation um, here, actually. So I guess that was in 1923. Germany had a hyperinflation of 30,000%. And you know, it, it resulted from the, the challenges that came from the losses and reparations from, from World War One, And then the government had to print money to fund these welfare programs. If you know any country who's doing that today, maybe that rings a bell. Um, the other, other countries around there started having economic crashes as well. And then what happens is these basic necessities just become incredibly expensive and because there's limited supply of them and everyone needs, everyone needs those things. And so they're willing to pay more money for them. So as you're willing to pay more money for those, for those, you know, basic, basic needs, then you'll see um, the price of them jump dramatically. And as those prices jump, then the government has to give its citizens more money to be able to buy those basic needs. And so here's how this happens. This excessive money supply comes in and the, the people lose confidence that that government currency is going to hold its value. And so then they actually want less of it. Therefore, now there becomes an even greater supply of this and this spiral effect begins to happen. Um, another thing that you'll see inside what, what happens to cause hyperinflation is war. And so war is another way that um, that countries need to need to uh, print a lot more money. And that can also, if not managed very well, can cause hyperinflation. Now, I don't want to sound the alarm here because hyperinflation is a real risk. It is absolutely a risk here. When you look at what the United States is doing right now from a debt standpoint, um, I think the current national debt is sitting at $33.5 trillion. Uh, we are we're closing in on adding, you know, close to a trillion dollars a month in debt right now. And so if that continues in that way, the the United States in no way can pay the interest on its debt, let alone pay back the principal. And so that that is a dance that has to eventually come to some type of reckoning. And what that looks like is a, is a there's a wide range of, of possibilities there. And anyone who tries to pretend like they've got that all mapped out, I would I would caution you to not not uh, not hold too tight to that. I, I certainly won't pretend to to feel like I've got that figured out here. Uh, but we're going to talk a little bit more about kind of how how this ripple effect may may um, translate to other things on a global economic scale, and then what that looks like for you. So, so hyperinflation is real. It it is a um, it is something that we should be aware of, and it's certainly something that. The, the the Fed and then there are very very intelligent people who are making decisions. Um, oftentimes, the decisions that are being forced to be made politically cause uh, cause you know some reasoning to go out the window. But the idea being, if we can, you know, we we are in better shape. We have better economic models. We have better policies in place than than these other countries have had in the past to protect us ourselves from hyperinflation. Um, but at that point. You know, we're also we are increasing our risk for going there. And what could happen is if if you see a, a bank run, kind of like what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, um, that can happen in in other banks here in other big banks. And there there are talks of you know Bank of America having significant unrealized losses on their balance sheet. And if people started to pull their cash out of Bank of America, then what what you know the, they could cause that to collapse. And so from that standpoint. We just need to be aware of we are in a fragile economy. Now, it's probably still the most stable, but but even even still, as the superpower that the United States is, we have 
uh, made our economy much more fragile um, than, than I think what most people feel it is. So when we look at um, reserve currencies in the history of the, so when, when you're talking about, sorry, when you're talking about the stock market, we often say as financial advisors, we're taught to say, hey, you just, you buy and hold, all right? You look at the, you look at history and history shows you that, um, that the stock market always comes back. You know, it took a significant drop in the Great Depression, it came back. It took a significant drop in the 80s, it comes back. It takes a significant drop, um, you know, here in the tech, uh, the dot-com bust that took a significant drop in the real estate um, housing crash. And it's, it's come back, you know, just recently here with COVID. So you, you just buy and you don't, you don't sell when the market's going down and you just hang on and, and it comes back. And when it comes, after it goes through its cycle, and it comes back. It normally, I think, the number was after a after a recession that the average is another 164 percent of growth from there. And so um, the 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 numbers absolutely show you that you are better to buy and hold. And as a financial advisor, I am by no means. And as you guess, we should put this disclaimer out there uh, that this is not meant to be financial advice to you. So this is meant to be educational. And and um, I would strongly recommend that you do your own research, talk to your own financial team before you act on any of the stuff that I'm sharing with you. Uh, not meaning to sound the alarm, but really meaning to, to help educate uh, all the listeners here. So as a financial advisor, I'm, I'm, I'm trained to tell people to just ignore the noise of the market and just look at history and history says that that everything's gonna gonna be okay just buy in the market have a diversified uh group of investments and and just wait for the market to do its thing and it'll bring your money back and that has proven itself here you know since the depression no doubt um that the market has shown that that it's got the resiliency to handle that the problem is we're only looking at a brief snapshot in history and so if we go out a little bit further well, the United States hasn't always been the, the world's reserve currency, and that has changed uh, a number of times. And so you look through, you know, every 70 to 100 years, you see another country take over as the world's reserve currency. And and now people are starting to look at that saying, hey, where's the United States in this cycle? Did the United States become the world currency in 1920 or did it really more so become the world currency um, in, in the in the mid forties after world war two. And either way, where, where are we at in that cycle? And we can just look at this and say, you know, history shows us the market's always going to come back, but that's only this, you know, segment here since the depression. But if we go back before then, you know, we, we don't have as good of data, obviously before then we don't have as good of market analysis, but we can also look at that and say, uh, history on a deeper scale shows us that, that civilizations that you know uh world superpowers don't last they don't last forever you know you've got the kind of i think the average like 240 years that uh, that a um superpower stays in its in its reign but you also have this concept of um of this changeover in world reserve currencies and so that's going to that will make an impact on on what the american stock market has if if the, and when the united states dollar uh, stops being the world's reserve currency, and so we're gonna we're gonna dig into that a little bit more here. Uh, it's important to kind of understand what's going on in the world. So when you look at uh, Russia, China, India, and some of these other Middle Eastern countries, they're transacting oil trades outside of the U.S. dollar, and so the, Europe has used the euro heavily um, for a number of years. 
But now you're seeing these major countries and these major and and one of the major reasons that all these other countries have U.S. dollars and have so many of them in reserve is for purchasing oil. And so now the biggest producers and consumers of oil in the world are starting to look at this and saying they're going to uh, transact their trades outside of the U.S. dollar. Um, that creates a reduced demand for the dollar, which then causes a devaluation of that currency because there's extra supply and there's not as many people who want it. And so, you know, it's not like the U.S. is just pulling money out of the system here because you look at how much we continue to spend in our our federal deficit is uh, currently at $1.7 trillion, and the spending that we're doing is currently at $6 trillion. Our, our federal tax revenue is at $4 trillion. And so we continue to spend a lot more money than we make, and therefore we are pumping more money into the system rather than, um, rather than taking money out of the system to account for other countries not needing to use U.S. dollars as much anymore. So hard to hard to underestimate how big of a deal that that is. You also have wars going on. Obviously, you're aware of the war in Ukraine, the war in Israel. Um, certainly, talks of you know. China possibly invading Taiwan and the U.S. going in to defend Taiwan. And that, in essence, puts us at war with China. What happens then? Uh, stock market, just for reference, when in World War II, stock market dropped about 18%. World, or excuse me, World War I dropped eight, 18%. World War II dropped about 30%. So if we look at this, where, you know, where did these, if we, if we have these issues here, where do we go with our money? And, and what would happen to the stock market if we had the United States no, not necessarily become, you know, get get replaced with someone else as the world re- reserve currency, but it just might lose its its superiority as the reserve currency because you have to look at, you know, where else would you go? It's not like uh, all the countries in the world are racing to uh, to trust China and to say, all right, China, you, you're going to be our new reserve currency because we trust you more. We no longer think the U.S. dollar is going to continue to hold its um its value as well. And so therefore we're going to go with China or Russia. Um, so that that's not likely the case. And so what you're just going to see is less and less people using the US dollar. And therefore you're going to see um, less value on that US dollar. And so that's where we need to be aware of, of where our, how we should move our assets around to, to be prepared for that. And again, this is, this is a, uh, I'm getting ready to put an, uh, send an email out to all of our clients. Um, this is something that that we're looking at doing, not recommending. Hey, let's abandon the stock market and let's let's get out because that you know they they always say that the the most expensive words in, in investing are this time's different, and and that's true. Like we have enough history to show us that that we shouldn't just jump and act on this. Timing the market is a is a fool's errand because um, not only do you have to be right once, you have to be right twice, which is incredibly tough to do. Um, and someone can get lucky and get it, do that here and there, but rarely do you ever see someone that's like, they, they know all their stuff and they know how to time this market right. That's just, that just doesn't happen. So, um, so I'm not trying to suggest that, but what I am looking at is we need to understand how the stock market is valued. The stock market is, is pretty overvalued at this point right now. If you look at, uh, I'm looking at some data here from a, a an article on advisor perspectives, and it's saying it's, it's measuring uh, it's measuring a handful of different ratios, and it believes that the stock market is 114% overvalued on average across these these different ratios here that range from 87% to 
136% overvalued. So it's produced an average saying that 114% is, is how overvalued the stock market is right now. What does that mean for for your portfolio? It means that, that your, your portfolio is, is maybe 114% higher than it should be uh, based on the, the, the true valuation of the companies that you're invested in. And so when you when you see these concerns, it drives up the importance of making sure that the assets behind your investment um, are are valued properly. And so in stock, you, they they call it you know it's paper. You know we, I I I hold the right to a percentage of these assets that this company has, and those are backed by often backed by assets. And it might be the intellectual property it has. You know it might be the uh, inventory that it has on site. Um, and oftentimes it might be blue sky, which is just the the opportunity to do uh, bigger things. And so that's where you see some of these companies. And there's a lot in the news right now about the Magnificent Seven, these seven companies that have caused the uh, market to have all the growth that it's had this year, while the other 493 companies in the S&P 500 have a cumulative loss on the year, yet the market's still showing it's up. Um, and so... So those companies have been seeing their values, in essence, let's say hyperinflated. So you look at real estate. Real estate needs to be purchased at a good price. Commodities like oil, you know, the world still needs that. Uh, precious metals, this could be gold, silver, palladium, platinum. U.S. Treasuries is something we'll talk about here a little bit. Uh, we're also looking at in our portfolios of, of military stocks. And for because, you know, we talked about um, the world is looking at you know, more military activity continue to happen here. So uh, just a few notes on, on each of these here. Um, inside real estate, like we just got done talking about Belize and it's just critically important. Real, real estate is a can be a fantastic investment, um, but you has to be bought at a good price. Uh, as Isaac Bennett always says, you know, basis is forever. And so what that means is that purchase price you have, that you, that you acquire that asset, that will always last. So if you pay too much for, um, for a piece of real estate, just like if you go and buy uh, Apple stock right now, and you, if you pay you know significantly more than what it's worth, then it's going to be really hard for you to ever make money on that investment. Um, but people need places to live; they're not making more land, so real estate certainly is a great way to um, hedge against the uh, if if the United States dollar uh, continue to lose its value. Um, we talked a little bit about commodities, and you know so. Oil. I'm just going to just talk about oil. There's a lot of other commodities in there, um, but just for oil, you know, there's so much that's being made about green energy. But we are a long, long, long way of, away from uh, displacing oil as a, as a major need for for our world. And so, I think oil is going to be here for a for a long time. I don't, I don't think we're going to see oil uh, no longer necessary in, in my lifetime. But um, but anyway, so commodity like oil, well, the world still needs to needs oil to run. So even if, uh, if we start to see, um, the, the dollar start to lose its value, we would still see oil. Oil would just have some new value assigned to it, but it's going to continue to, to be necessary for the, the world to continue to run. Um, we talk a little bit about treasuries here. So treasuries are a fantastic place to go for, um, for a, a portfolio right now, not, not necessarily all of it, but, uh, but having a significant portion of someone's assets into United States Treasuries is a it can be a, a great op- option. And so um, there are different ways to do that. Um, you can buy these directly from the U.S. government. You can also buy them in the, the they've got a website that makes that really easy. Um, or you can also 
by ETFs. ETFs are mutual funds that allow you to uh, just do this simply inside, you know, inside your your own portfolio. And treasuries, you can buy these from very short time durations, or you know, so thirty days, and you can buy them up to thirty years. Um, and so this acts very similar to a bond, where you make your investment. And then they tell you what type of rate you're going to get, what type of, they call it a coupon rate, what you're going to get uh, in exchange for the for lending them their money, whether it's for 30 days or two years or 10 years or you know 20 years, whatever length of duration you choose, they're going to you know, assign a value to that. And so right now today, a 30-year, uh, or excuse me, a 30-day United States Treasury is paying 5.57%, uh, two-year uh, Treasury is paying 5.02%. A 10-year is paying 4.86%. That's important because that's called the inverted yield curve. And you've heard, you probably hear people talk about that. The When the two-year Treasury is paying you more than a 10-year Treasury, that doesn't make sense because it's saying normally you should get paid more to uh, have your money locked up for 10 years than you would to only have it locked up for two years. And so when they have those backwards, that's called an inverted yield curve, where you're actually getting paid more to, in this case, to have your money locked up for 30 days. You're getting paid more now on a 30-day schedule. You're getting paid more than you would over a 10 for 10 years. And so, from that standpoint, this is the inverted yield curve. Um, we have been recommending to clients that they that they do um, a little bit of mixture, depending on what what their risk appetite is, depending on what they're trying to accomplish um, inside their investments here of of having a mixture of these these different United States treasuries, which still are, are considered the world's safest investment backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. It's just the fact that right now the full faith and credit of the United States government is continuing to mean less than it did, uh, than it did prior. If someone was trying to make a more speculative investment, the, there are ETFs that, uh, represent the 20 year United States treasury. And those have taken a massive hit here. Um, because the the United States Treasury was paying such a little amount before, and now that it's paying so much, that if you do a longer duration, uh, you'd have more risk. So, if I'm committing to lock locking this money for 20 years, if the price of if the interest rates go up or down, it's going to cause a bigger move 20 years out on on a on an investment for 20 years out than it is for um, for the 30 day one. And so, there are people who are looking at that right now, saying, I think the I think the Fed's done raising interest rates, and therefore I'm going to invest in the 20-year um, United States Treasury into a, into a Treasury fund like an ETF now, and hope that that as they drop interest rates, and that'll cause that fund to uh, to outperform significantly. And so, again, that, that's a lot of speculation there. Everyone's trying to to guess, you know, what what the Fed's going to say next uh, in terms of interest rates, and so. It's you need to be well aware of the risk that you're uh, taking on before you proceed with that. But it's certainly something that is a strategy people are people are looking at. We are we are recommending a, um, a heavier leaning toward the short term United States Treasuries. Um, but there's there's a there's a place for um, a, a longer term fund. It just depends on the the time horizon and the risk tolerance that that the investor has. Talk a little bit about military stocks here. Just this idea, you can so you can go and buy stocks. You know, Lockheed Martin, who who is going to um, when the United States issues out additional 
military contracts that they're going to be a big beneficiary of that. Or you can buy, again, a mutual fund or an ETF that's a collection of a handful of those different uh, companies. Um, you know, as, as history would show us, as things get tighter with money and people get more desperate, they tend to rally together and you unite around blaming someone else. And so you can look through past wars and see that um, all around the world that that we we as human beings like to have someone to blame. And so this is often where, you know, the, what happens as, as wars begin to to break out there. So not that not that I want to be an advocate of war, but but that's just what we're looking at inside the market where there might be opportunities and so we're going to we're going to talk focusing on gold here just for sake of time, but you could do this to other precious metals like we described before. There's all sorts of advice out there uh, from the you know the tinfoil hat wearers uh, to you know incredibly sophisticated and uh, you know experienced experts in in the gold trading industry. Gold has been a store of value for thousands of years. It has a way longer track record than the United States dollar does. That's for sure. Um, and so if the US, United States continues to fall out of out of favor and, and people around the world, whether United States citizens that hold U.S. debt or other countries that hold U.S. debt, um, as they continue to lose their trust that the United States is going to do a good job of, of keeping the value of their dollar, then that's when you'll start to see other um, other, you know, other assets start to rise because they have to put their money somewhere. And so uh, there's just, like I said, there's just not a really great alternative. There's not another country that's that presents uh, a stability that that the United States has. And so therefore, you probably see more people point back to gold. And, you know, there's talk of this, you know, you know maybe Bitcoin gains, gains some share there. But, you know, I doubt it's ready to assume, you know, c- control as a, as a one world currency like the Bible does talk about Um so how to buy gold? You can buy gold bullion. You can buy gold coins. Um, those, when you do that, you have to be very careful of of transaction fees because um, it's you know when if I have a U.S. dollar, I can I can go buy something from from you or from anyone else with that dollar, and there's no there's not a transaction fee for that unless you're you know using a credit card. Um, but with gold, it, it's it's not as easily. Uh, you're not, the transactions aren't as aren't as easy and efficient, and so therefore there is a premium for that. So, if you wanted to start making your payments, you know, for everything in gold coins right now, you're going to find that you're you're paying, you're overpaying for stuff because um, because it's not easy enough for the vendor, the person that you're contracting with, to to take that gold and and get U.S. dollars out of it. Um, but there are also ETFs or mutual funds again that allow you to. Um, that tie directly to gold bullion. Um, there are companies that that are uh, you do gold mining that are uh, grouped together, and you can you can invest into those as well. And so, um, and having some exposure to precious metals is is always you know part of a, a kind of a standard portfolio. But I would just uh, encourage you to do some more research into that. Now that that's certainly what we're doing. We are continuing to do more research into that, and and having these conversations with clients to just decide do they want to um, increase their exposure to to precious metals right now or to u.s treasuries um or to other good real estate and just you know where do we want where do we want our exposures how do we want to uh, set ourselves up from a risk standpoint with the economic uncertainty that we do have right now so with that i hope that's helpful um that you know it's a little bit intentionally vague to to make sure i'm not giving direct investment advice 
to someone, but you're certainly welcome to to reach out to us um, or reach out to your financial advisor and just ask some more questions, but learn a little bit more about inflation, what inflation really is. Learn a little bit more about the risk that we have with all the, the debt that we continue to take on as a country and and what the downstream repercussions of that are. And then figure out how you want to be positioned um, in the, you know, in these these next few years here as things continue to unfold. And it, again, I would just I would emphasize the idea of, of staying alert, but having a plan. And so we always talk about, you know, just just stay stay committed to the plan. Um, it's just important to make sure that for so long we've our plan has only been based on, you know, what's happened these last hundred years. But the world has existed much longer than hundred years. And from that standpoint, we should also be aware of um, be aware of how that may impact our portfolio as well. Hope that's helpful to you. Uh, as always, if you, if you get value out of this, you know, please subscribe or share it. And we will talk to you next week. Thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And together, we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. 